Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in a wet, chilly Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in very similar conditions in South East London. But it's um, a great pleasure, despite these conditions, to um, welcome Tanya Aldred as our guest today. Tanya is um, one of Britain's most admired cricket writers for her contributions to The Guardian, Wisden Cricket Monthly, Cricket Info, among many other publications. Uh, she's a co-editor of The Night Watchman, the quarterly publication by Wisden, uh, which aims to present the very best of cricket writing every quarter. In pursuit of that aim, she's published us once uh, once or twice. But um, most importantly, I think, um, Tanya in recent years has contributed one of the most important sections in Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac, and that's the section on cricket and the environment. First of all, Tanya, very much welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for that ridiculously generous introduction. <laughs> um, uh, yes, no, thank you very much. And I can tell you that it is damp but sunny in Manchester this morning. Sunny is an improvement on uh, on things here. Not a, not conditions we often associate with Manchester. <laughs> no. Um, but the, um, damp, the damp, on the other hand, is... Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Tony, as we said a moment ago, cricket and the environment, three years of contributions to wisdom on that subject. Uh 2019, you wrote about the impact of climate change in general on, on cricket. 2020, you focused particularly on on heat, on the Australian bushfires, and on toxic air as threats to cricket. This year, 2021, you talked about the, the carbon footprint of cricket. First, are you writing a section for 2022? Is the topic selected, and can you reveal it? I, I am writing for 2022. I think Lawrence would, would actually kill me if I told you what it was about because he has yeah. a, a veil of secrecy over everything that's going into the almanac. Yeah, he works for the Daily Mail. He's a very dangerous <laughs> man. <laughs> I think he has, yeah, he has two, two hats um, or many hats, but uh, in his, with his almanac hat on, um, yes, we're not allowed to breathe a word about what's going in. But Lawrence has been very supportive of, of that section. Obviously, it was his... You know, he, I think I initially wrote a, a kind of environment piece whenever you said it was Richard 2019 or 2018. Um, and then he decided that it was going to be a regular, a regular piece for the Almanac and has been very, very supportive about that and very keen to get environmental issues into uh, the Almanac. And I, he has also written about stuff for the, for the mail as well, I think. Yes. Um... As far as toxic air is concerned, just one little detail, perhaps you didn't notice at the time, but when England played the Test match against India uh, earlier this year in what we kept having to call the Narendra Modi Stadium in Ahmedabad, <laughs> um, the, um, I read a local weather advisory for the city which um, told people not to play outdoor sport at all in the city, which I think is very, <laughs> very striking contrast. And I just do you think that international cricketers have been made to risk their health simply to make money from, from television? Um, I, I suppose the answer has to be yes. I know there are 
quite often in India, particularly in Delhi at this time of year, health warnings about people being told to be inside and children not going to school and stuff. So if you are playing cricket outside, whoever you are, whether you're an international sportsman or, you know, you know, like a, a kid playing cricket on the streets, you are risking your health. Um, and yes, I don't see television companies or even the ICC particularly paying any attention to the risks that cricketers are taking with their health because anyone doing sport and particularly professionals because they're working harder the more they're breathing the harder they're working you know the more they're inhaling so therefore the danger to them um, is greater as it is also for children and for for old people though I want to be fair to India it's not just it's not just India and the Indian subcontinent where these problems there have been Reports in British cities too of you know risks from outdoor sport, as especially as you say for the for the oldest and the and the youngest. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not. I suppose it's in my mind because I've read stuff about Delhi recently, just with the burning of crops and stuff like that. Yes, I know that people have talked about the Oval, particularly being on that. If you if you imagine where the Oval is, is that junction, there's just traffic going round the whole time. About uh, high levels of pollution there. Um, although Surrey, I know of. Uh, growing lots of sort of trying to grow lots of greenery around the stadium so yes I suppose there's it's not just cricketers it's it's any athletes if you're operating in a, a zone of of high pollution you are risking your health. The other very serious subject of course is the carbon footprint of cricket with the overseas tours. Australia's just coming up I mean are they have they got a sensible timetable for uh, sort of for flights or are they doing what they've done in previous years with great huge unnecessary journeys oh, do you know what peter i don't actually know the answer to that um and i think it's all been slightly up in the air because of covid and they weren't sure which cities were going to be yeah. open for business as it were um so i don't actually know i know that it was something that the ecb had said they were going to be looking at that has been promised for a couple of years or 18 months a ecb strategy on the environment. I think everything was kind of put to one side because of COVID. But I believe that they continue to have funding for this kind of strategy when lots of other stuff was cut. And I, I think there'll be something coming out in the spring. And I know that they were looking at trying to reorganize tours so that they were greener. Um, the ICC have not shown leadership um, on anything environmental, really, um, whether that be talking about heat stress or air pollution or carbon footprint, they've just not really shown any leadership, which is disappointing. I suppose it's not that surprising. I know there's been quite a lot written recently about the fact that the what the all that the ICC is really is something that organises games. They don't really show any great moral leadership. I don't know if you think that's fair. Um, I, I would just say it'd be a bit stronger than you. I'd say it's a money-making organisation run by India with total disregard for the future of cricket or let, uh, with the environment even lower down on its list of priorities than cricket itself, which it doesn't care about at all. <laughs> to take a very moderate view. <laughs> there's an abominable organisation, which is basically hostile to cricket and in favour of making gigantic sums of money at the expense of the future of the game. That is what it is. Uh, and uh, we, we, that's, but that's a matter for another day. So it's not a surprise to learn that the ICC has done nothing about the environment. It never will. No, well, I've, I've actually got an email out to them asking what, they, what they're doing. I kind of send one every year 
prior to writing this cricket in the environment piece, which I have to file actually in about two weeks. So um, I will have to get a move on with that. But uh, asking what they've done, what they're planning on doing, and the answer is always not really very much. And the thing that is so frustrating is that if you're talking about the, the test playing nations, so many of them are, are really are at serious risk from climate change and you know things are happening now that are making life in some areas of these countries very difficult. Tony, in the, you actually looked at those issues for each individual country quite recently in the T20 World Cup. You surveyed the environment-related threats to all the 12 finalists. And basically, you, I mean, the, the, uh, there are so many of them at different, um, almost literally at different levels. Heat, drought, toxic air, flooding, extreme weather generally. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. And even in even in England and Scotland, uh, which we think of as being fairly immune, I mean, you you talked about threats there, and you talked about the heat threat, and that has to be very th- serious, uh, given that the MCC has allowed members to remove their jackets at Lords. I know that's unbelievable, isn't it? Um, mm. Yes, I mean, I think although that the uh, heat threat, it, it, it was quite a good line about the MCC asking members to remove their jackets. I think in the UK, the risk is more from extreme rainfall. Um, because that has, I mean, it does affect um, county cricket and international cricket, but I think probably more importantly in the UK is it's affecting recreational cricket because so many cricket grounds, um, especially council facilities, are built on floodplains, really, because that's where the land's cheaper. And I can't remember what year it was, but my son played barely any cricket just because, I mean, we are in Manchester, I should say that, but... Mm. Just um, the ground was flooded week after week and unable to be played on. So it's in some ways it's fine if you've got you know an amazing groundsman who's got all the tools at his facilities. But so many of these recreational clubs are just run by you know plucky volunteers, um, mm. and there's not that much you can do about the sudden and very heavy rainfall. That's a very good point. I mean, how uh, Tanya? In which context? Uh, how environmentally sound are the plastic pitches which are springing up everywhere at the moment? Um, now, I have actually listened to a seminar on this, which was uh, during the lockdown last year, and it was talking to different manufacturers. I, I think the answer is probably it depends. The old fashioned plastic pitch with the, what do they call it, the, the crumble, that kind of stuff that you get if you've ever had children that have played on AstroTurf pitches, no. that yes. sort of stuff that comes into the house and it feels like it's getting everywhere. Um, they were not great. There are pitches that are being made now that are more sustainable. I'm not an expert and I can't tell you how good all those pitches are. I think there are lots of people who would say they are evil. You know, no one should ever use those pitches. You should be using yeah working with grass because it's natural the other argument is well grass needs lots of water and care um, and you might be using if you're using mowers and sort of mechanical equipment that's um, not and I think people are increasingly moving to sort of battery mowers but if you're using them and they've got petrol then obviously that's another aspect that you have to think of it, it basically is really complicated to work out what's the best solution and with all these things the more you look at something the less clear-cut the answer becomes so I would say I don't really know what the answer is but I know there are people looking into it. There is one issue I do would like to return to is is this question of the carbon footprint 
I mean, we love these overseas tours and the uh, and the globalisation of cricket, and it's been so wonderful with all the new test-playing nations and then spreading cricket into new countries like Nepal and Thailand. But, I mean, our tour is something we should look at and say, no, uh, we shouldn't be flying off here, there and everywhere all the time. I think it's a really difficult one because you end up sounding like a huge party pooper. Um, you know, who who are you going to stop touring I mean, originally, obviously, it was male cricketers who would tour. And obviously, that's proliferated. You've got female cricketers who are touring. And then you've got disability cricketers who are touring. And then, like you say, you've got um, associate nations who want to be involved in touring. And then you've got the proliferation of T20 tournaments. And it's very difficult to say which ones do you cut. I wrote something for the cricketer about globalization of cricket and where do you draw the line and I think people were quite cross because you had ended up talking about how do you, why don't you want cricket to grow? Um, I think there's a more existential question about growth and should we always want growth? And I'd say the answer is no, um, there's enough, but how you divide the pie up if you've got a, if you were going to say, well, we want, we're going to use a certain amount of carbon to fly teams around the world. It's difficult because you're also talking about an athlete who has a certain amount of time to maximize their career or earn money do you tell them they can't go and play in this t20 tournament here and there i don't know it's really difficult i mean i do think yes you shouldn't have pointless one day competitions for australia to fly over here and play three games that just seems ridiculous mm, um, that's a very good point yeah these sort of, of games it happens in rugby too we have a, i mean everybody was saying isn't it wonderful that new zealand's playing scotland i mean what, what was that all about you know i mean so it was it was just a, a, they just turn up and have a game of rugby i i think that yeah that i like your idea eliminate pointless fixtures yeah <laughs> i mean i'm sure there'd be some sort of huge icc committee to discover to decide which ones were pointless or not um but I, I suppose you look, you always look back slightly with rose-tinted spectacles, but I look back to when I was growing up in the 80s and you had your sort of five tests and your three internationals in a summer, and that seemed enough. You know, that seemed nowadays, umpteen teams turn up. You never know what's going on. It's well, like... <laughs> exactly. And, I, mm. I, and if we're talking about cricketers playing too much cricket, which I feel that like they are, yeah. and no one really cares about, I would say, some of these... T20 games um, or one T10, day game. There's T10 nonsense. Oh, the T10. We have to put up with now. Yeah, so we've really, we, I think we're making real headway in this conversation. We're going to <laughs> eliminate pointless tours, which is like 90% <laughs> of them. Yeah. We're going to have much less flying around the place and give cricketers holidays. <laughs> less is more, I think. I think we should yeah. be moving towards less is more generally. Um, although when I wrote that wisdom piece last year someone did say to me and I can't remember who it is without finding it on my computer that basically it's it's a little bit of a red herring because the number of cricketers flying around is so small really there aren't that many professional cricketers compared to say businessmen who are flying around the world all the time to have a meeting here or there so although it's quite a large part of cricket's footprint compared to the footprint worldwide sportsmen would be would be small yeah but we've all got to have our impact on stuff and you know businessmen can have more zoom meetings and cricketers can stay at home i i, I think <laughs> uh, yeah. one thing one it's even affecting test cricket these short tours isn't it because we 
Fazir Muhammad told us uh, just recently that West Indies will have played five two-test tours in um, in the space of a calendar year, which really does seem absolutely pointless. It's not even something to do to the summit of cricket. You know, it, it's no way to treat the summit of cricket. No, I'd like to know what cricketers would choose if they could choose the amount of cricket they played, how much they would actually want to play. I think that would be an interesting exercise to find out, you know, would you rather just go on one tour a year and then play your domestic summer? Yeah, I'd, li- I'd like to know that really, because I, I don't know how much satisfaction can be got from multiple tours of, of two tests. Because like you say, it doesn't, it doesn't prove that much. Well, I go back a long way. That's how it was in the old days. One, one long summer tour, one long summer programme, five test matches, and at most one, one overseas tour. Mm. Uh, and I can remember just when overseas tours were still done by boat. So that was, <laughs> I don't know what, that's, what that does for the environment. But let's let's move on anyway. Uh, we've we've not we've we've certainly reduced the international program. That's not <laughs> the um, already um, climate change and environmental campaigners have been using cricket for protests in recent years. You know, um, as Wisden recorded, Extinction Rebellion have formed a cricket club. But I just wondered, uh, do you know of any top cricketers who've taken up um, environmental causes? Other present day or past um, great cricketers and um, do you know any examples? Yeah well there's he's not he's not that well known yet um, but hopefully he will be there's a, a young cricketer called Joe Cook at Glamorgan who has made I, I think he's probably made the most noise in this country on environmental issues he's um, I think he played his first full season last year but he works for Friends of the Earth in his spare time and he uh, talks about the environment a lot. He's joined, he was at COP and he's joined something called Eco Athletes. Um, and I know he's working on an advisory basis for Glamorgan as well to try and help them with their sustainability programme. So in the UK, I'd say he's probably the loudest voice. Um, there have been other cricketers. There's a, the ex rugby union player, David Pocock. Um, in Australia, he's been very influential over there and organised. Um, I think it's called the Cool Down. It's uh, basically encouraging athletes to use their voices to help tackle climate change. And I, I wrote down the cricketers who had signed his kind of letter. And the most influential one is Pat Cummins. So he signed. Ooh, ooh, wow. yeah. um, and then there was Ian Chappell, Shane Watson, Rachel Treneman, Alex Blackwell, Sean Abbott. Harry Conway, Rachel Haynes, and Naomi Stallenberg. And then I know that Shane Warne was on a, he was sitting on an MCC committee when they were looking at climate and the threat to cricket. And I actually spoke to him and he was kind of worried enough to, I think it wasn't something that he'd particularly thought about, but when he was told of the threat to, to cricket and the future of the game, he has spoken out against it. So there are people who are raising their voices. I think in, in this context, we ought to mention, I believe that Imran Khan, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, had an involvement in cricket at one stage. And, um, you know, he's uh, planted 14 billion trees, I think, something astonishing, and uh, aims to have 60% of Pakistan's energy from renewable sources by 2030. So... Wow, that's, uh, that's impressive. Yeah, I, I knew about the trees, but I didn't know about the... Re- 
Um, He's very strong. I mean, because if you're northern Pakistan, you're getting the, the, the glaciers are going one by one very fast. Mm. And that has incredibly, has terrible effects in terms of flooding, but also long term sustainability. So um, he's been a, become a world leader, actually, on this subject. No, that's brilliant. Because I, yeah, I know that Pakistan are in, I mean, they're, they, some of those cities just have intolerable heat, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know how people survive in it. So, yeah, no, well, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. I know that there's a couple of Indian players who've spoken out, um, R. Ashwin has, and um, I think Harbhajan Singh spoke out about pollution. I don't actually know about any current Pakistan players, but there may well be, and I just don't know about them. I must say, I mean, you, you might think Wisdom might go and interview um, Imran about what he's doing for the environment. It would be well worth it. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic, actually. I'll have I'll have a word with Lawrence. <laughs> it, 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 Imran has put um, the environment into his party's sort of um, manifesto, or its kind of shop window for his party for quite a long time, and he did it in when they took over Khyber Pakhtunwa. Yeah, um, the former Northwest Frontier Province. Uh, they had a big environmental message. And a big environmental program for for that part of Pakistan alone, so he's he's been very consistent about that. Mm. Um, another Pakistan player I can mention who's been involved in some environmental causes, particularly campaigning against plastic, is Wasim Akram. Well, he's very close to him, run of course, so they probably do talk about it. Mm. So what's um what's Wasim Akram done? Um, Wasim Akram, he's been involved a great deal in campaigns to clean up plastic waste, which is slightly tangential to the environment, but not not that but, tangential. Not tangential. No, no. Not tan- but not that much so. And um, yeah, he's been very, he's been publicly, particularly, it's actually been not surprisingly in cleaning up cricket pitches um, and cleaning up beaches. Um, mm. He's been very involved in. Well, that's fascinating. And with Imran, do you know, has he been working with sort of. Uh, NGOs in Pakistan? The, I, I don't know specifically. I'm sure the answer is yes, though. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they have a that. very senior kind of climate change minister. Um, they actually really put it, it's very striking how seriously they're taking it there compared to, say, Britain, where it's, you know, despite hosting COP, it's all basically, a, you know, that, that, that's, that's their object. They're just getting in the way of building new coal mines and developing yeah. oil fields and so on. Imran, as in so many things, has got to overcome a lot of vested interests in Pakistan with the, you know, with the status quo, with people who are still making money out of energy, the wrong kind of energy. Before we leave the environment, Tanya, we we did promise you a, a free plug for the next test, which is a, I think it's a, an online organisation you've set up. So here's your chance. Tell us about its aims, its borders, <laughs> and all its activities and its triumphs. So I set it up two or three years ago. All it really exists at at the moment is it is a Twitter feed. And what we try and do is put out ideas, spread the word. If people are doing good things, we try and raise awareness about things that aren't so good. I would like us to become more than a Twitter feed. It's just trying to find the time really to to become something else. I have half started to set up a website with my daughter but I need her to give me a bit more of her expertise so we can uh, become something. I think we've got a half website up somewhere. Very um, daughters, but I can tell you from um, 
personal knowledge. Very helpful in (laughs) websites or anything like of that nature. Exactly. They say things like, Mum, why don't you understand? Mm. Um, And also, I think we have got, again, a useless Instagram account, which... Uh, sort of half started and half doesn't exist um so what I would ask is yes if we just the more followers we have the more influence we have I suppose so if people just want to add the next test to their people they follow on Twitter that would be great and if you retweet anything that you think is interesting every little bit adds possibly some pressure on people who can do things people with influence so yes, please please do follow us, and if you have any ideas, please do get in touch. We we have and we will. Um, I'll just mention it again at dictation speed at the next test or one word. Yep. Thank you, Tanya. Uh, let's talk now about your own journey in cricket. The author biography for your book on um, Andrew Flintoff said that uh, you joined Wisden Cricket Monthly as a photocopier and a tea maker. Um, how did you progress from that into cricket writing? Um, yeah, it was, it was a quite an, I feel like it was quite an old fashioned journey really, because I'd done some work experience at Wisden Cricket Monthly. I can't remember when it was now, 1996, I think, um, which was just when Tim Delal had taken over as the editor and he was very keen on work experience. He's always been brilliant at bringing on younger journalists um he's a fantastic mentor so mm. i started and nice did some, to hear mm. yeah no he's he's absolutely brilliant um so i did a bit of work experience there and really enjoyed it but at this point i'd already signed up to go and do a, a teacher training course up in leeds so i went up to leeds um to go and train to be a history teacher um, but i was absolutely appalling at it <laughs> I had no control at all in the classroom <laughs> Um, and so I dropped out after a term and was just working in Leeds doing various other jobs. Um, and then Tim got back in contact in that summer of 97 to say that they'd moved to London because the office had been a bit of a cottage industry in a, in a residential house in Guildford. And they needed someone, I think, they didn't say tea lady and photocopier, but it was an editor's assistant part time. Um, yeah, so that's, I jumped... uh, that's what it meant, though. Exactly. That's exactly what it meant. And it was the sort of, it was back in the days where you would file stuff. So I'd be filing photographs. I presume that no one actually has files of stuff anymore. Um... I do. You should see my guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I joined doing that. And I don't know, just slowly, I answer, I answered the phone a lot, which was actually brilliant for me because I'm by nature quite a a shy quiet person so I would have found meeting people in real life you know in in big press conferences or gatherings very intimidating but actually to get to know them first over the phone was absolutely fantastic and I'd highly recommend that to anyone who is a a kind of a a more introverted character because I think it just eases you in to any situation if you've if you've had a a spell just speaking to people on the telephone even if it's just to you know say has my copy arrived or you know can you put me onto the editor so I started off like that and then yeah I just then I was made a sort of I think I moved from editor's assistant to editorial assistant and started doing bits of writing and that was just kind of how it how it started and we had a a fantastic team of people there was so Tim Dalal as I say and then Lawrence Booth who's now the editor of Wisden and Simon Briggs, who now writes about mm. 
tennis for the Telegraph, and Stephen Lynch, who's the font of all cricket knowledge. Oh, no, Stephen Lynch, could you send his... I mean, he is an extraordinarily learned man. Oh, he knows everything, absolutely everything. And he was. I mean, a... It makes Einstein look a bit. <laughs> yeah, he would not have the problem that I have of forgetting <laughs> things that I've already written. So I don't know if you've ever had him on your podcast, but you... we have. We twice. have. He's we have. Absolutely. Twice. It's, I mean, it's uh, the intellect. How many brains does Stephen have? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of brain cells. Yeah. Um, so there was a yeah a great a great team of people and it was a fantastic start in journalism very friendly and a privileged yeah yeah I just feel so lucky because I don't think I'd have ever I never thought about being a writer or writing about cricket just wasn't anything I'd ever considered so it was a a succession of lucky breaks really that got me into the writing about cricket cricket writing used to be a very male preserved didn't it um your one of the um, women who sort of broke a glass ceiling in the in the profession, uh, and there are others. And obviously, you achieve this by sort of individual talent. Um, but do you think there's there was a general change of attitude in the cricket world, and that um, people worldwide, readers worldwide, have been ready more ready to take women seriously as reporters and analysts of cricket? Uh, yes, I do think so. I think things have changed quite a lot. Well, there's been changes in society, obviously, but. I think back to quite recently when there wasn't really ever a female voice you'd hear on the radio um, about cricket. I think Donna Simmons did some commentary um, when West Indies were over here, but you barely ever heard a, a female voice until Alison Mitchell came on the radio. And now it's so natural to just hear a woman talking about cricket. And that that feels mm. like a huge, a huge breakthrough, perhaps more even than having people writing about cricket, because I've I'm not sure how often, I mean, journalists, I know everyone's got an ego and think that people are reading their copy because it's maybe... Terribly it's, good. Oh, yeah, or, or it's, which, or it's which, by them. But in they fact, do. <laughs> I, think, I think people just want to read what happened and they might not look at the byline particularly unless there's a photograph above so it. Are you making a sexist remark <laughs> Time. Are you saying that men just have these enormous egos, <laughs> whereas women are much more descriptive and less sort of? No, no, I'm not. I'm saying, I'm saying that when I think that a female voice on the radio is perhaps more of a breakthrough than a female pen in the paper because it's more noticeable, and that people might not read the byline but they recognise the voice. So they will hear a female voice more than they would notice a, a female name in the paper, perhaps. Um, so I think there has been a huge breakthrough, particularly, I think, on radio and television, perhaps more so than in the in the written press. And yeah, I just think it's great. The more diversity you can have, the more voices, the better, really. You write about other sports, including cycling and women's football and the Olympics. How do these other sports compare with cricket? sort of as an environment for, for women writers? I think it's quite it's quite hard to say because most of the other sports I've done, I've just dipped in and out, whereas cricket's been somewhere where I've spent, you know, on and off 20 years. And it's quite difficult when you pop into a covering a sport, whether perhaps the way you're treated is because you're a stranger, because I know press boxes, especially when I first started, they weren't particularly friendly places. Mm. Um so you're not sure about, are they being very offhand because 
they don't know who I am, or am I being offhand because I'm a woman? They don't know, it's it is, hard it to is tell. It is terrifying, isn't it? As a young reporter, strolling into a press box, and my word, they can be foul to you. <laughs> I once went on to it's like Air Force One and made a sit with the White House press corps. Wow. They they really were horrible. Really? I mean, yeah. Oh, yes, it's a pecking a, order. Mm. Yeah. Real pecking Told order. Told me not to sit there and who are you? And no, they are they are vicious and unpleasant people. I can't imagine you being cowed though, Peter. <laughs> well, I wasn't, but it was still <laughs> extraordinarily unpleasant. I was being cheerful. Hello, how are you? I'm from Britain. <laughs> that would have gone down really well in Air Force One, I'm sure. Yep. Mm. Um. No, well, I, I remember standing outside press box doors trying to get the uh, courage to walk in, you know, if, if, yes. a few times. That's it, you're standing outside the door, you knowing this baying army of selfish, egotistical men. <laughs> Yes. Well, you never at least never made the mistake of sitting in E.W. Swanson's chair. Yes, <laughs> I know there have been terrible. Um, yeah, I think there have been terrible arguments about someone's chair and that someone had saved it. And mm. I always sit there. I haven't. Actually, I didn't actually ever make that faux pas because I always sat at sat at the back so I could hide. But yeah, I mean, I don't think. I think actually, press boxes today are much more welcoming. To everybody. Tell me, who About is time. nice to you? Who is nice to you? Amongst, amongst this crowd of hostility, there must have been somebody who was like John Arlott. We've had lovely conversations with journalists who are, John Arlott would come along and say, anything I can do to help, come and have a drink. You know, who, who was nice to you? Oh, God. Well, there's, I would say that every one of my generation, so I'm now 48, which seems ancient, but everyone of my generation who I met in a press box was lovely. And probably equally terrified. Um, God, who was nice to me? Lots of people were nice to me. Uh, Vic Marks was always lovely. Dear old Christopher Martin Jenkins was always very kind. Oh, it's lovely to hear that. We mm, really miss good. him, don't we? Mm. He was nice to me. I once went into the... Actually, it happened to me. I was uh, barged into the press box uh, about 10 years ago when Richard and I were writing our books on Pakistan cricket. And and I went in and I... You know, they they don't... Who are you? And Christopher Martin Jenkins came up and shook me by the hand and was nice. And believe it or not, so did Jeffrey Boycott. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> mm. It's just, um, it sounds like some one of your maxims from your, your book, Richard, but <laughs> it's just the value of someone smiling and saying hello. It's um. just, you know, it, it costs nothing, but it just makes you feel so much more at ease about the whole thing. Absolutely, it does. It's a rule of life. Be, be mm. kind to people, and also, there's a final point: if you're nice to them on the way up, they'll help you on the way down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, Tony, did, did you have any cricket background yourself? Were you and are you now a player? Or, or no, just... I'm absolutely appalling. Oh. Um, I've got three brothers, so I used to play with them growing up um, in the garden, and I've got a huge family. My mum's one of six. And they're all the kind of cousins are cricket mad. So we would have played big games on holiday in the summer and in my grandma's garden. So I played a lot as a child, but I'm really not very good. I've got terrible hand-eye coordination and I never played for a women's team. I think when I was growing up in order to play cricket, you basically had to be either very good or very brave to go and play with a boys team because there were hardly any girls teams. Mm -hmm. And I was neither of those things. So 
I would love to have played, you know, sort of softball cricket at school or something, but that was just never on offer. I've heard that from quite a number of women guests in the past, and um, it, it, it's still there's still a pretty big obstacle to girls playing cricket, isn't there? Particularly girls, you know, went going to state schools. I think, I mean, my my I've got a daughter who's now seventeen, um, and she. So do I. Uh, I have a daughter of seventeen. Aren't oh, they utterly delightful? They are very delightful. If, mm. if only they could tidy their room, they'd be <laughs> perfect. Um, but she's found a, a, a fantastic club nearby who've been so big shout out to Didsbury Women's Cricket oh, Club. Um, mm. If you're in the in the South Manchester area, I highly recommend it. Who've been absolutely wonderful and really supportive because I think girls and boys, I think, can play together pretty easily through most of primary school. But I think it then does become quite intimidating and you don't you know, have being an experience of a lone girl on a boys team isn't necessarily particularly nice. So I think that's where lots of girls will fall away um, because they don't have a team that is a girls team to play for. So I think there are more girls teams setting up. There are also softball leagues. I think also quite a lot of children don't particularly want to play with a hard ball because it's mm. quite scary um, mm. and they don't want the bother of carrying all the equipment. So I think softball leagues are I actually think softball leagues are brilliant just for boys cricket as well because there's lots of boys who come to cricket say you come to cricket at 12 it's quite hard to by that stage you know most of the boys have been playing since I don't know six and they've been playing with a hard ball for quite a lot of that time so it's quite hard to come in and play with a hard ball straight away so I'm a I'm a big fan of softball cricket I think it's brilliant can I move the subject on to Afghan uh, women cricketers you, you wrote a very very powerful article in August about Afghan women's cricket. I want to put something to you which is controversial, and actually, I'm almost scared to raise it because you're it's bound to get run into resistance. If you look at the trajectory of Afghan cricket, you know, there was no cricket at all 25 years ago to speak of in, in Afghanistan, and we've had the rise of the Afghan man's team, which has been a glorious thing for global cricket and a glorious thing for Afghanistan because it links Afghanistan, this hugely isolated country to the rest of the world. And now we've got the Taliban taking over and they, the situation seems to be they can relate. They're happy with men's cricket, but they're less happy or not going to allow, although there are different different reports coming, women's cricket. And the reaction of world cricket, you know, Australia says, well, unless you have women's cricket in Afghanistan, that's it. You're not, you can't, the men's cricket game is not going to be welcome globally either. Now, I... I'm an incredible enthusiast for women's cricket in Afghanistan, as as in Pakistan, and it's wonderful. But is that isn't that a huge price to pay? Isn't it terribly sad that Afghan men's cricket should be forced uh, basically into isolation because of the social stru- social views of the Taliban? Yes, <laughs> I think this is a very difficult issue as well. Um, in fact, we've I've spent quite a lot of time talking about it. We have a we have a Guardian cricket writers whatsapp group and this has been something that's kind of been bashed around quite a lot and I do think it's very difficult because if you speak to people actually on the ground in Afghanistan some of them say no please don't or stop men's cricket being played by Afghanistan men because women will get the blame for it and that will mean people will be more against female cricket that's interesting that's very interesting yeah other people would take the opposite point of view and saying, you know, it's outrageous that you could have Afghanistan playing where there isn't a, a female team. <laughs> then you've got to ask how functioning the female team has been 
over the last few years in Afghanistan, to which the answer is it's been very on and off, I think. I think it depended a bit on how the authorities felt at a particular time. They, they went to training camps and then they were promised a game and then the game never happened. So it's not like you had a Afghan women's team that was out there playing loads of one-day internationals. That wasn't the case at all. What you had was something that was starting to flourish. Um, I don't actually pretend to know what the answer is. I know some of my colleagues like Raf Nicholson, who writes a lot about female cricket, and she's probably the... the Very much. She's, so. been, a guest, she's been a guest of us twice, yeah. Yeah, she's brilliant, I think. And she's written a lot about how outrageous it would be to allow Afghan men to play if there wasn't a female team. Um, yeah, you're very honest in your answer. It's a very, very interesting answer. Mm. Uh, the other thing I would add to it, you know, that if you go back 30 years, there was no such thing as a Pakistan women's team. No. Uh, and it, and even go back 40 years, there's no such, no women weren't allowed into the MCC, you know. And suddenly to sort of, I sometimes think there's a sort of chronological confusion here that we apply the values we've got in the West in 2020, forget where we were 40 years ago, and make a, a nation but if I could also evolving in its own way, uh, apply to values which we, we f- might find our own way. Sorry, Richard. But, yeah. but if I could have put, just put in a, a contrary view, um, you know, again, going back in time, in South Africa, the principle got established eventually. No... You know, no normal cricket is possible in an abnormal society, and if um, if the Afghan society is completely abnormal in its approach to women and its approach to to many things, and if it's re- if it's really fallen back into the hands of a you know a, a fanatical clerical dictatorship as it was under the Taliban before, um, it's no use keeping. As in South Africa, it's no use putting cricket in a little bubble, a protective bubble, when all these terrible things are going on around it. I think the difference with South Africa is that sanctions, sporting sanctions really hurt the authorities. They wanted to play cricket. You know, it was an expression of their national identity, whereas the Taliban don't give two hoots, really, that much if cricket's played or not. Um, so you're not really comparing like with like. Uh, like I say, I don't. I, I read one article and I think one way. I read another article and I think another way. And it's quite hard to judge without all the knowledge. I suppose what you want to do is you don't want to make unintended consequences. Um, I think I'd be tempted to just wait a little bit longer. Um, it's broadly what the ICC is doing, isn't it? It's the, its policy is to. Um, keep Afghan cricket under review. Um, yeah. By what means it's doing this, I'm not quite clear, but it's um, it's sort of pursuing a wait and see policy. As a matter of fact, um, it just happened to have distributed the revenues from international cricket, Afghan Afghanistan's share of it, just before the the fall of the country to the Taliban. So it hasn't got any. The ICC, I think I'm right in saying, has got no. Financial leverage at the moment against um, against Afghanistan, but it would be when the would have when the next um, instalment would be due if things mm. if things aren't being run properly. I mean, if there's so many problems, you know, the fact that young girls can't go to school, the whole thing is just so awful. Although that is um, exaggerated quite. I mean, it's a very interesting. We, girls, I think that there are a lot of Western reporting of uh, what is going on in Afghanistan is based on um, 
bigotry and ignorance, paradoxically. I mean, if you actually read what's happening in Afghanistan, the schools for girls are reopening. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to ask a bit about schools, female schools are reopening in Herat, for instance, following local pressure, which the Taliban gave into. And so it's right. an organic thing. And it isn't the West coming, we are going, we're not, we aren't going to give you any money unless you do the A, B and C, which is a very colonial attitude. It's allowing Afghanistan itself to evolve or find a way forward, which surely is uh, more of a satisfactory and real way, way to go into the future. Many more things we could talk about, Tanya, um, but we've had a wonderful conversation. And, um, well, all I can just say is thank you for joining us. Thank you so much as well. It's, I've learned a lot and it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. No, it's a huge pleasure to talk to you, I think, for the first time, Tanya. I hope we will talk many I hope times it won't be again. the last. Mm. <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's even gloomier and further wetter here in Wiltshire than it was at the start of this. Um, it's goodbye from me, Peter O'Born, in, uh, in, in the West Country. It's goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in South East London, also getting gloomier and colder. Mm-hmm.